Hi, I'm Mary Ann Smith, and I'll be talking about evaluation and non-drug management of neuropsychiatric symptoms in dementia today. First, let's, let me give you a disclosure uh, about financial interests and relationships, and some continuing disclosures. Um, I would like to really acknowledge that the work described here in this particular lecture uh, was conducted during a three-year AHRQ study improving antipsychotic appropriateness in dementia, for which Ryan Carnahan was, an was the primary investigator, and I was an investigator. And the point of that study was to think about how we could adapt and disseminate comparative effectiveness research information uh, that was provided by AHRQ related to the use of antipsychotics in dementia care. And what would it take to make us be more successful in reducing unnecessary antipsychotics? So today we're going to talk about the problem-solving algorithm that we developed as part of that AHRQ-funded project. And uh, to do that, we're going to talk about four main groups of unmet needs that tend to cause and contribute to dementia behaviors. We're going to apply the antecedent behavior consequence approach, talk about the evidence base for simple pleasures interventions that are Target, are targeted in dementia care, and think about organizational culture as an influence on how we interact with older adults who have dementia and whether or not we actually use non-drug approaches and interventions as often as we could or should, and to what extent maybe the prescribing culture of the organization may interfere with using what we know to be effective in dementia care. So we start by saying, you know, we know all know about dementia and that there are the multiple cognitive deficits. And there's a big chunk of problem that can be caused by memory. And then the additional symptoms, executive function, aphasia, apraxia, agnosia, all make some small contribution to behaviors that we see in dementia. For the most part, though, the non-cognitive symptoms the neuropsychiatric symptoms, which are also called behavioral and psychological symptoms in dementia or problem behaviors, are not the direct result of the problems and declines and losses that are part and parcel of dementia. Those are a secondary set of problems. And so, as you can see listed on the slide here, there are a lot of variations in terms of what we see delusions, anxiety, depression, irritability, agitation, and there are dozens of names for the symptoms uh, that we see. We know that these are very common. They occur about 90% mm, of people with dementia. But in this arena, many of these symptoms are considered highly treatable by changing what we do in terms of our interaction with older adults with dementia, how we approach them, how we talk to them, how we interact with them, how we gauge their abilities, lowering our expectations, etc. Many, many interventions that we can use, non-drug approaches, that help to reduce and relieve these often problematic behaviors. 
What I want to recognize is that we've been at this a very long time. Uh, Kitty Buckwalter published in the Geriatric Mental Health Training Series, uh, which I was an author on, in about 1986, a number of recommendations about how we can think about older adults with dementia, how we approach them, what are some of the interventions we can use to reduce the likelihood that we see these behaviors in the first place. Linda Terry, same thing, also in the 1980s, wrote a, a series called Managing and Understanding Dimension. Actually, there's a slide at the end that gives you the reference for these. Joanne Rader, Jessica Cohen-Mansfield, Ann Kolonowski. You know, there's, there's just a really long list of researchers who have been at work thinking about how do we understand dementia behaviors, what can we do about them? How do we approach people that can make a difference in their quality of life and also in the quality of life for people who provide the daily care? The thing that kind of comes out over and over again, no matter whose model you look at or, or what theoretical underpinnings, is that behavior is communication in dementia care. So we really need, need to pay good, careful attention to the person's behavior. The other big message is cognitive deficits that are part of the dementia influence what kind of behaviors we see, but they don't fully explain it. So there are other things at play that are very important for us to consider and to understand. And the third main thing is that environmental influences are absolutely critical. Unmet needs are common causes of, of behavioral problems both overstimulation and understimulation can contribute to behavioral symptoms. And what that all boils down to is that what nurses and other daily care providers do next, meaning how do they respond, how do they understand it, how do they react to the person's behavior, has everything to do with what is going to happen and whether the behavior will escalate and become more problematic or whether we can actually calm and soothe the person and the behavior goes away. So the model that I'm going to use to frame uh, the talk today and that was used in the algorithm is the need-driven dementia compromised behavior or NDB model that was developed by a group of nurse researchers who are listed on this slide and their underpinning beliefs were that behaviors don't come out of nowhere. There's a reason that behavioral symptoms occur. And as before, behavior is a communication. If the person can't articulate in words any longer what is going on with them, it will come out in their behavioral symptoms. So it's, it is a form of communication. And we need to learn to listen to the behavior as a message and try to understand what's being said, so to speak. So caregivers have to listen with all of their sense, senses. And the thing is that there are two main domains, kind of the long-standing traits and, and more stable factors, and then the more fluctuating proximal factors, which we'll see on the next slide. But the idea is that there are things that we can do to understand what the behavior is and then to respond to it. So as you can see on the left hand side of the slide, background and individual factors which are called distal factors include things like where are they in their dementia? You know, what are their other medical comorbidities? You know, 
what is influencing them physically that might have to do with the kinds of behaviors that we see? What are their long-standing personality traits and habits? And, you know, how did they live their life? And who were they as a human being that comes with them into late life and is influential in the kinds of behaviors that we may see as part of their dementia? And then on the other side of the slide, we think about the proximal or close-up factors that have to do with things that are going on in the environment. And it isn't just the kind of physical surroundings that we might think about. These are the personal environment of the individual who has dementia. So what are their unmet physical needs? What are their unmet psychological needs? You know, what's going on in the social environment that might have something to do with the way that they are responding and behaving and acting that, that we may be able to attribute to something in that social environment and then change that so that we can reduce the occurrence of the behavior. And obviously, we also need to think about things that are in the physical environment. How much noise there is, uh, what are the color contrasts, you know, how many entries and exits there are that might be an enticement to try to go wandering. And the wandering may just be, I'm looking for a place to go because I'm bored. So those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about. On the one side, the distal background factors that are operating there and more constant, and then the proximal environmental factors that are interacting with one another to contribute in this kind of funnel way to the behavioral and psychological symptoms that we see. So we want to pause and say, well, they're wandering. What does that mean? Are they bored? They're calling out. Does that represent loneliness? Help me, help me. I'm lonely over here. Please, someone come pay some attention to me. If they're grabbing at us, does that mean that they're possibly afraid of being heard or that we're going to injure them or pushing us away, that you know, we're, in, we're invading their privacy? And those are personal parts, and I don't like it when you touch me there, so stop that. Or agitation, you know, maybe there's just way too many things going on at once. And like a small child, they get start to ramp up and get, you know, just irritable over having too many things going on at one time. And then they, on the flip side, the person is withdrawn. Maybe there's not enough going on. And in this notion of intrusive behavior, and the person goes into another person's room and starts looking through what they have. Uh, it can be very upsetting to the other person. What are they searching for? Are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Are they missing something that they're looking for? You know, how can we understand that behavior? So that brings us to the algorithm that we developed uh, for the study that's called IADAPT for short. And in our algorithm, there are three main steps. And the first step is to identify, assess, and treat contributing factors. The second step is to select and apply non-pharmacological interventions. And then the third step is to monitor outcomes and adjust the course of what we do. Now, this print is horribly tiny, and we don't expect you to be able to read that. So let's go on and think about what these steps actually involve. So for every behavioral problem, we look at each one individually, and we say, okay, how often is it occurring? How long does it last? How intense is it? And what, is it? what are the characteristics of this 
behavioral problem that we hope to address. So by characterizing the behavior, we're digging around and we're thinking about what are the factors that may be contributing to the behavior so that we can understand them and hopefully reverse them, prevent them over the long haul, and maybe the behavior won't occur at all. That is the, the outcome that we are seeking. So we want to assess and think about what we can do, these antecedents and triggers to the behavior, and, and then every question that we ask suggests an intervention, so we'll come back to that in a little bit later. So the model, this is Linda Terry's model, and, and it was actually borrowed from uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and is used many times uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy to get people thinking about what is the problem that they are, are experiencing, you know, what is the behavior that they are, are, are distressed about, and then backing up and saying, well, what are the factors that lead to that? So we do the same basic thing in dementia care. We say, what is the behavioral symptom? You know, what is the behavioral problem? What is the neuropsychiatric problem that we are that we are seeing? And then we say, hmm, let's back it up and say, what are the antecedents? What are the possible contributing factors? What are the triggers to that behavior? What's going on in the environment? What's going on with the person? What might be leading to this happening now? at this time, with this person, at this day, etc. And then we also want to think about what are the consequences, and we more often think about what are the reactions uh, that the daily caregivers are, are providing or that others in the environment are providing that either increase the likelihood that the behavior is going to continue, they kind of feed it, and may actually make it worse, or what are the things that happen that reduce the likelihood that it is going to persist, that we calm, soothe, reassure, distract the person, and maybe we have a better chance of reducing the, the intensity of the behavior. We think about the antecedent, we change what we do. Maybe we can change the frequency with which it occurs. On the flip side, when we think about consequences and reactions, too often staff and family members alike use the model where if I just ignore it, maybe it'll go away, and rarely is that the case in dementia care. Most of the time when we see a behavioral symptom, we want to go to the person and we want to intervene right away rather than saying, maybe it'll just burn itself out if I just ignore it. Well, in dementia care, that's a, a, a poor model uh, to try to think about it. The better approach is to say, I see the behavior, I respond to it in a way that I'm trying to calm, distract, uh, help the person be more comfortable, and then we can work on thinking about what were the antecedents to the behavior so that potentially maybe we can reduce the risk that it occurs at all. So in step one, we're really thinking about treating these contributing factors. We're thinking about simultaneously identifying them and then thinking about once I identify it, then that leads me right next to the intervention that I want to use about once I understand what it's about, well, then I can change what I do to reduce the risk that it occurs in the first place. So we think about our antecedents or triggers and our consequences or reactions as being very much in this domain of proximal factors in the NDB model and thinking about these as being the things that we have the best opportunity to change, to alter, 
so that in that funneling of what is contributing to behavioral symptoms, we really do have pretty good control over what's going on in the environment. So that's the focus we want to take. So in the big yellow sheet, there are four main sets of factors that we look at. The first thing is to think about unmet physical needs. And you know, folks, I hate to say it, but we're really fairly uh, insensitive to the fact that people with dementia have overlapping com medical comorbidities that cause things like pain, that they develop a secondary illness, that they get hungry, thirsty, tired, and have sleep disturbance like other people, but are not able to articulate that in words, to explain to us as their caregiver, boy, am I ever having a bad day. I've got the worst pain in my left lower quadrant, and it's really making me cranky. Instead, we're more likely to discover that through movement or trying to bathe them or groom them, and they respond in a way that tells us very clearly that they are distressed. Then the next question is, what is that about? So lots of unmet physical needs that we need to think about. The other side of that is that there are a lot of unmet psychological needs. Loneliness, boredom, and, you know, I went through that slide with the behaviors on one side and then the possible explanation on the other side as being maybe that's what was causing the behavioral symptom. Uh, those are exactly the kinds of things that we want to back up and ask ourselves. Do they have enough to do that's enjoyable? Are they bored out of their mind? Is there appropriate level of socialization for them, given the stage that they're in, their level of language use, opportunities, small group, one-to-one -one interaction instead of the big group, activities that we tend to like to use, but are very ineffective for people who have dementia. So very important for us to think about that. And privacy, intimacy and privacy, you know, just in terms of the way we approach them and, you know, how we dress them and groom them and bathe them, very important to consider. The social environment is also amazingly important to consider in terms of how many people there are, the level of noise, how much there is to do. And there's such a, a lot to say about do we expect too much from them given the stage of disease that they're in? Or do we not expect enough? And so on the one hand, we may be overdoing, we may be doing things to people when they're really able to do for themselves and they resent us combing their hair and brushing their teeth and, and would be very much better off if we would cue them. So it's understanding where are they and how do we adjust our expectations to fit that. And the other side of that is what are we doing with our communication? Are we making ourselves clear to them? So as we read their behaviorist communication, we also very much want to think about, is our language understandable? Or are we talking too fast in long, complicated sentences that they, can't, they don't have a prayer of, of following what the intention of what we mean? So another piece is too long, too much, too hurried, too complex. So often in daily care, because a person can do something one day, we wrongfully think that's their baseline and it will be unchanging and they can do it every day. And that isn't the case. So one day they may be able to button their shirt and you know do more self-care activities and the next day they're just having more difficulty with that and kind of gauging what kind of help they need as opposed to, oh, come on, Harvey, couldn't you just try a little bit harder? kind of communication that can be very abrasive and upsetting and, and 
contribute to a more negative reaction. We want to think about what is our approach in this social environment. Are we really focused on our routine and the tasks that we have for the day and what our long list of things that we need to accomplish? Or are we really thinking about this person at this moment in time and what they need from us to be successful? Do we even do the simplest things like tell the person what we're going to do before we do it? Tell them who we are as we greet them in the morning. Hi, Harvey, I'm Mary Ann, and I'll be helping you with your cares today. Do we catch them off guard? Do we come up behind them and start doing something before they even know we're there? So, you know, it's a lot to think about in terms of in our rush and hurry and task-oriented kinds of culture that we're approaching people and, and thinking about them because they have dementia and they're not talking to us is being unable to understand, which is not the case. They're able to understand if we give them the right stuff to work with. The other piece, physical environment, is are the physical surroundings understandable? Has the t TV blasting in the background because that happens to be the daily care provider's favorite show? Or is it turned on because it's the care recipient's favorite show? Are there pictures on the wall that are confusing to the person, that they don't understand, that they may think are people that are looking at them or spying on them or animals that are going to come and hurt them? You know, there are lots of opportunities for misinterpretation in dementia care. So think about those things and ask yourself. The other side is, do we provide a, any kind of meaningful signage? People aren't going to read the words anymore. So do we have symbols and smells and pictures to help them wayfind and be successful on their own so that we're not constantly saying, Harvey, you can't go in there. Don't go in there. That's not your room. Stop that right now. Which are the kinds of things that too often do happen in the absence of assistance for people to do things on their own and be successful. The other big contributing factor is to back up and ask ourselves about other psychiatric illness because as much as we think about the physical factor at the beginning and the, as a contributing factor and, you know, comorbid uh, physical illness and other, you know, arthritic pain, joint disease, and other things that may physically be going on with them, we want to think about psychiatric illness too because it's just as possible that they have an overlapping depression or depression with anxiety or anxiety symptoms or delirium. And I've got delirium on, in yellow on the slide because I think it is so critically important and so often is a trigger uh, to new onset of behavioral symptoms among people who have a dementia. And then certainly psychosis and other, other mental illness. But overlapping symptoms are really, really important for us to consider. Now, in the algorithm and in the IADAPT project, we spent a fair amount of time really thinking hard about this overlap of delirium uh, on top of dementia because too often that goes unrecognized. And, and we're saying, oh, well, they've got new behavioral problems, but we're not backing it up and we're saying, what is the specific physical factor that is causing the change in status and causing the behavioral symptom so that we can treat the physical factor and then the problem behavior goes away on its own. So very, very important for us to think about that. So 
there are a long list of predisposing factors that just put older adults at risk. And when you think about those who live in our long-term care environments in particular, it is so critically important for us to recognize that really, truly, on a good day, almost everybody who lives in the nursing home is at risk for having delirium just because of the characteristics that predispose people to having delirium. And then we think about what are the precipitating factors or the triggers, you know, the actual physical factors that then cause a delirium. There's so much that goes on in that arena too, you know, a new medication, medication side effect, infection, pain, changes in the environment, all kinds of, every time we send somebody in for a procedure, they come back from surgery, you know, the anesthesia that we give them alone for 30 days afterwards is, is really likely for them to have some level of delirium, so post-intervention, post-surgery, post-anesthesia. Very important for us to think about. So in the IADAPT project, there's another set of cards uh, that talk about delirium assessment and management and introduce uh, the delirium screening tool. But I'm not going to go into that because I think there's a, a lot that could be said about that, and that really deserves to be talked about independently. So in our algorithm, the behavioral alg algorithm for using non-drug approaches, the first step is think hard about what the behavior is. Back it up. Think about what the antecedent triggers and maybe reaction, unhelpful reactions that keep the behavior going are. And then use that information to decide what the intervention needs to be. So the second step is to use the non-drug intervention. And we use the very same principles. We want to think about what is going wrong in the picture, so to speak. And then what can we do differently to try to change what we do or what's going on in the social environment, the physical environment, the person's personal environment, so that we can get a different outcome as we interact and work with the person. So the basic principles are, are to say what is the type of behavior and what kind of retained abilities do they have? What are their personal preferences for daily care? What kind of resources do they still have? And as we think about that, you can see on the bulleted list underneath that statement, there's a, there are the very same things that we're thinking about in the need-driven model. It's a combination of things that are distal, so what is your current cognitive level, and then proximal in terms of what physically are they able to do right now. Distal, long-standing habits, personality, interests. Build on who this person is, who this person has been throughout their life. You know, how can we create something that's comfortable, that fits with them as an individual? The, to do that, then, the second thing that we really need to do is to think about how we train staff to use selected interventions, and to use them well, following the best practice and the guidelines, and within their comfort level, you know, doing things that they know how to do and do well. So there's a lot that goes around the training staff to use a different approach. The second thing that we need to do is really tailor the intervention to fit the person and their current needs. So 
we want to think about, again, that list and think about where are they now, what's going on, what are their abilities, what are the retained abilities and resources, what can they continue to do for themselves that makes a difference then in what we are going to let them do and cue them to be successful, and then maybe what are the things that we'll need to do for them, again, cueing them and showing them in mirroring behavior to be successful. So we start with the individualization. Who's the person? You know, what are the long-standing habits? What are the values? What are the beliefs? A lot of times this information comes to us through their social history. It comes through family members who know them well. Occasionally we have someone who doesn't have a good social history, but most of the time there is someone who can tell us about long-standing history, long-standing habits. How did they work? What did they do? Where did they live? What were their preferences? When did they bathe? You know, all that kind of stuff. The other piece that we use is supporting function. So this is where, what are their retained abilities? Because we don't want to take over and do things to the person because that is more likely to escalate the behavior and cause a negative outcome. We're more successful when we let them do what they can do for themselves, and which very much supports their dignity. It's very much more respectful than grabbing the hairbrush and brushing their hair and sticking a toothbrush in their mouth and saying, okay, now you look great, let's go. Very different approach than handing them a hand brush, saying, brush your hair, showing them how to do it, and cueing them. So it's the very different approach of not taking over and doing things to the person versus encouraging and cueing and organizing things for them so that they can in fact be successful. We also need to think about what's a reasonable outcome because you know, doggone it, sometimes people have sworn like troopers their whole life long and they are going to use words that we do not like. On the other hand, you know, where are we with this? And and where are they in their dementia? And are they going to be able to get it back? And so thinking really carefully, again, this is uh, pretty much the same list that we looked at before about what do we need to know about the person and their retained abilities in order to make sure that we're just doing what is needed for the person, our expectations are appropriate but not too high, and also that our expectations are not too low, and then how to individualize the routine in order for the person to be as successful as they can. So let's go through a list of, of ideas. So one of the most important things that we do is adjust how we approach the person, and that is going back to this idea of cueing and prompting and reminding and encouraging is so much better than jumping in and doing things to the person. We try not to reason with them, not to over-explain things, not to use long, lengthy explanations because, you know, it's going to be lost anyway. So just real good, simple instruction is the best approach that we can use. We also want to work at their pace and think about how they're going in the day. And instead of rushing in and telling them they have to get up and, you know, it's time for breakfast, let's go, go, go. Maybe just pulling the drapes open, let the light flood in, think about if they're awake yet, start talking to them, and knowing what their habit is. Are they an early riser or are they one of those people who wakes up slowly 
and appreciate so just a few minutes to get themselves together before they put their feet on the ground and start rotating to the bathroom, etc. So there's a lot that goes on into this in terms of our logic versus where they are and what they need. So following their lead can be just enormously important. We also want to think about giving people choices. We tend to think they don't respond well to open-ended questions. What do you want to do? And they look at us and they don't know. Open-ended questions, are you having pain? They say yes, and then you say, where is the pain? And then they don't respond and we erroneously think that they don't have pain. Well, it's that it's an open-ended question. They can't formulate that thought. But if we ask a, a limited choice question, we say this or that, now or later, blue or pink shirt, shower or bath, there's a very really good chance that they can give us that information. So limited choices are, are very important for us to use as, as we intervene with people. So it's very important that we also adjust our communication. This goes back to the contributing factors in the social environment where we talked about maybe the language that we use isn't understandable to the person. And so it's very important that we slow it down and we simplify. We want to get rid of the jargon and use nouns, not pronouns. So if I want the person to sit down, I say sit in the chair, not sit there. We also want to use language that the person understands. So if he or she uses the word pee to reflect urination or voiding, then that's the word that we want to use. And we also want to think about what we're doing with our facial expression. I think that sometimes forget that how we say something is just as important as the words that we actually use. So it is the tone of voice and the facial expression that we're using, the pointing and illustrating, mirroring behavior. So for instance, if we want the person to use the toothbrush we hold the toothbrush up and show them, or pretend that we're holding it, and show them about brushing their teeth so that they get the gist of what we are trying to do. We also want to approach people with a very positive regard. There's no sense in correcting people or telling them you're wrong. You may think that their father is still alive and they're going to go visit him. And it is absolutely pointless to tell them, oh no, your father's dead. Because it only hurts them at some level. Then they know, they recall that and it's a painful memory and it's, it's unhappy. So instead of using the countless you are wrong messages, which include things like, that's not your room, and no, you live here now, you can't go home, and all of the things that we're constantly telling people when they misremember things, but it feels real to them and we're constantly correcting them, that is a form of negative and very restrictive feedback that can escalate behavior. So we want to think very carefully about what we're doing in that arena. And it's also really important that we think about you want to know if they're oriented or not, but we don't have to test them. We can do that in a conversational tone. And so instead of, and, and this goes to family members too, instead of looking at them and saying, do you know my name? Do you remember who I am? Which is just so unkind to a person who has memory deficits. We want to say, hi, mom. 
It's Mary Ann. I, I got a recent haircut, so I wanted to remind you which daughter I am. Or, hi, Sally. I'm your caregiver again today. I know I've been taking care of you pretty consistently this week, but I, I still think it's good that, that because there are too many of us for you to possibly keep track of. You know, So you want to normalize that a little bit. We also want to think about their health needs in terms of, again, this goes to this notion of potential for delirium. We want to think about risk of dehydration, so we want to keep that glass of water clearly available at all times. We want to think about what is their nutritional status and are they eating the right kind of stuff. We want to think about pain management, not just using pain medicine, but the value of getting up and walking of exercise, of their mobility, of range of motion things that we can do uh, that are very helpful to both reducing their perception of pain, their experience of pain, but also have this added benefit for those who have a tendency to wander that maybe we can meet their unmet exercise needs so that they're not walking up and down the hall and every doorway is considered an opportunity to exit and go someplace different because these surroundings get to be really boring. And we think about compensating for the sensory deficits. So are the glasses on and are they clean and are the hearing aids in? And can they really hear what we are saying even if we're speaking slowly and clearly and using good, clear, simple communication? Can they hear us? And if so, are they hearing correctly? So lots of opportunity for misinterpretation. We also want to think about what's going on in the physical environment that might be confusing to the person. We brought that out in, in discussion of the environment as we were thinking about assessment. So do they look at their reflection in the mirror and think that somebody is looking back at them? Do they look at their reflection in the dark glass at night? Because the drapes have not been pulled when maybe that would be just the perfect thing to reduce the risk that they think somebody's looking in at them. Can we turn on lights so that there is less confusion, less opportunity for misinterpretation because of dim lighting? So lots of good things that we can do here, along with thinking about excess caffeine as being a form of stress. You know, people get ramped up because we don't feed them decaffeinated coffee after their first cup in the morning. Too many people having the activity at lunchtime when there's already lots of noise and confusion going on and then we bring in the choir or the little children or something else and it just creates more confusion. Can we adjust stimulation to fit them? Are they an early riser and then they need a little time out a little bit later in the day? Are they more prone to having a behavioral problem in the middle of the afternoon, late in the day? Are they one of those that consistently seems to have a problem late in the afternoon, which we call sundowning? Is that, how can we target what we do to accommodate that? So we need to think really carefully about the timing, morning, afternoon, evening, night. What's that mean? And then what can we do as a care provider to try to accommodate that? We also think about what's going on with stimulation. And again, back to this consistency, structure, familiarity. Lots of us talk about variety is the spice of life, but not for the person who's got dementia. 
For the person who's got dementia, consistency in routines and consistency in approaches, doing the same thing the same way when it works for them is a really good model to follow. So lots of good things that we can do in terms of thinking about what do they find comforting? Bringing in a baby, bringing in a baby doll, bringing in a dog, bringing in the cat. What are the things that we can do to accommodate them and what their unmet needs might be? And so we come back to that in thinking about the physical setting again. And do they have they always been an outdoor person? Do they love the great outdoors? For me, when I have dementia, you better have a courtyard that I can go out and, and dig in the dirt and get dirt underneath my fingernails, and then you'll have to scrub me up afterwards because I'm going to want to go out and, and pull the weeds and plant the flowers and mess around in the yard because that's the stuff that makes my heart glad. So we need a secure outdoor area. We probably need some decorative tactile objects that they can touch and understand and try to explore a little bit. And we're going to see that in a few more slides. Use of natural light becomes very important, both from the perspective of being able to see simply what's going on around us so that we don't misinterpret it, but that we also enjoy it. We can also use things like, I, I call it a spa light bathing facility where it's a nice steamy warm room that's understandable to the person it smells good it feels good it doesn't have all of the kind of sterile features that so many institutional bathrooms have there may be pictures on the wall we may have a little aromatherapy going on there's a nice heavy towel we cover all the body parts that aren't being washed we really protect people's privacy but we focus on it being an enjoyable experience not just something that has to be endured twice a week because you know some regulation somewhere says that's what we do in long-term care and we also use memory boxes and colors and signage to help people find their way. So outside their door, there may be photographs, pictures, objects, things that are personal and dear to them that draw them to their room. It might even be the smell inside the room. We had used aromatherapy successfully with a gentleman where they used, I believe it was the, the fragrance of lilac because that's something that he had always loved. Lilac bushes in his yard, etc. And they used a lilac fragrance on his pillowcases and in his bedding and then they they would talk about with him, do you want to go where it smells like the flowers, where it smells like lilacs, when he was starting to get unsettled and ramp up and more agitated, and he would say, yes, take me there, take me to that place. And it was a way to communicate with him about he needed to de-escalate, he needed to get away from the chaos. So in that arena, we want to think about signage, but and it could be words, so we could use John's room, but that's more for other people to understand. And the do not disturb sign, that generally is for someone else to understand. Because lots of the people who have dementia are going to lose that ability to understand the words and the writing. And so we want to think about, well, what are the symbols? What are the colors that we can use? And there are just a handful of samples on this slide to give you some ideas about the way that we might do that. The other thing that is so critically important that we want to talk about is involving people in meaningful activity. And it isn't just activity. 
It's meaningful activity. It's a personalized program. And, and it involves not just the large group program, you know, stuff that a lot of long-term care facilities do. It really has to be tailored to the individual. Where are they in their dementia? What can they tolerate in terms of the size of the group and the composition of the activity? So we want to think really carefully about how much can they do on their own if they're given an appropriate type of activity? What can they do to entertain themselves? And then we want to think about well, what are the one-to-one -one activities that we can do? And I can hear the word, oh, we just don't have the staff to do that. But I'll tell you what, folks, we always have the staff to clean up the mess after somebody has had a horrible behavioral catastrophic event where they strike out and they hurt somebody, and then you fill out an incident report and you have to talk to the family member and maybe even have to send your staff member to the hospital to be evaluated and... So we're constantly cleaning up messes, but we don't seem to always have the notion that we can work proactively to prevent those things. So I very much adhere to the model that, yes, we do have time if we allocate our time appropriately and if we provide our staff with the right kind of training to say, it's just as important for you to notice that Mr. Smith is getting a little kind of like restless and uncomfortable and see if you can start to engage him in one of our simple pleasure interventions that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Engage him in an intervention so that it doesn't go any further. That is just as valid for you to do as a care provider as it is to recognize when he's restless because maybe he needs to use the toilet. So very important for us to think about how we're talking to our day-to-day -day care providers and giving them instructions about what is important for you to do and what are the priorities in your daily routine for in, in the care of individuals who have dementia. So activities alone, one-to-one -one activities, small group activities, Many times the small groups can be composed of other individuals with dementia if they have shared interests and then kind of supervised at a distance by a, a care provider. And I would like to also uh, endorse the notion uh, there is an F-tag that very definitely speaks to the idea that dementia activities need to be tailored and that all of these activities done alone, one-to-one, -one, small group, and large group are part of the, of the program of activities that need to be offered to a person with dementia. So it's not only a good idea, it's actually part of the rules. We also know that there are an enormous number of benefits to reducing problematic behaviors by increasing the number of enjoyable activities that people are engaged in. If we can reduce the boredom and apathy, and if we can reduce the tensions and provide comfort and relaxation and reassurance, things that they understand that are enjoyable, that feel good to them, then we reduce the risk that we're going to see the other side of it, which is the problematic behavior. So in the evidence-based model, in our algorithm, we have assembled a number of evidence-based interventions, and we've categorized them according to problematic behaviors. Those are all listed on the slide here. I'm not going to talk a lot about that because what, we, what that basically boils down to is that we use many of the same interventions for different kinds of, of behavioral symptoms. So it's important to understand the behavior, but it's also under, important to understand the intervention and how it is tailored to meet the needs of the person.
So lots of common themes in terms of what works. Individualized music works very well. Simple pleasures interventions work very well. Physical activity and exercise work very well for many people. And certainly animal-assisted therapies, cats, dogs, fish, work very well if they're used appropriately and if they're targeted and tailored to the person with dementia. So every intervention requires a full understanding of the approach and you have to, you have to understand it in order to apply it effectively. But most of these are very easy to learn and in the algorithm and in, in, in the website there are additional instructions that go along with this so that you can read more on each of these. But there's also a body of a very strong literature that say Interventions are picked based on the person and the behavior, and when we understand the interventions, oftentimes we can make it work for the person. So back to this idea of tailoring, and I, I apologize, you may feel like you're being beaten up with these ideas, but it is so critically important to being successful that I'm just compelled to say it one more time. So think about what are the individualized needs. Do we want to stimulate? Do we want to calm and soothe? What's the daily rhythm? And then we think about the person. What do they prefer? Were they always an outdoors person? Were they kind of a little, you know, more socially withdrawn, kind of maybe a little bookish, loved to more quiet, one-to-one -one individualized activities and weren't real big socialized? So good things to think about when we're trying to move this ahead. Were they quiet followers, social and outgoing? And then back to this notion of cognitive, physical, and functional capacity because that certainly guides what we want to do in terms of selecting and applying the intervention to try to be as optimally successful as we can be. So we can use activities in different ways. You know, you can use a music intervention, for example, in order to stimulate the person or to relax them. So if you've got somebody who's kind of withdrawn and apathetic, and, you know, you might actually use uh, a group music playing singing intervention to engage them and to get them to sing along and to bring them out of their kind of shell or cocoon. On the other hand, you've got somebody who's kind of ramped up and anxious and irritable and pacing and wandering and maybe looking like they're about to, you know, strike out at somebody. We might take them to their room, put a headset on, give them some nice soothing music that they used to like to sing along with, and let them listen to that, maybe hum or sing and relax in their recliner, maybe with their feet up for a few minutes. And so even though it's music, we use it in very different ways. There are lots of choices, and I would like to acknowledge Linda Bittner and Suzanne Fitzsimmons, who literally wrote the book, In My Way of Thinking, about activity interventions for individuals who have dementia. On this slide are many of the uh, types of activities that they have evaluated with older adults who have dementia and that are developed and written about in the book that they have published with Venture Publishing that I'm going to show as a slide on its own at the end of the program. For now, what I would like to talk about are the simple pleasures interventions because for so many individuals, these multi-level sensory motor interventions are just enormously successful. Lynn and Suzanne started out doing this 
as a way to help family members interact and visit with their loved ones who are already in the nursing home because it was it's kind of stressful they didn't seem to know how to interact and so a lot of it arose out of that and then as they continued to build on it they kept finding that there were lots of really excellent things that they could do to reduce boredom and passivity and agitated restless behavior that were distracting and engaging that then reduced the occurrence of those behaviors in the first place. So it's a combination of those can be used preventatively to reduce the risk that it happens, but we can also use it as an intervention once it starts to occur to try to distract, engage, and reduce the behavior after it's started. The complete instructions for simple uh, pleasures are available at this website, and I would like to emphasize there are instructions. You can you make these things, these items can be made by you or groups of volunteers, which would be ideal. So they're not high cost. You don't have to buy this stuff. You can make it yourself. And then more importantly, there are written instructions about what you do with the intervention to engage the person, to talk to them, to get them to look at what you're showing them, and then tell them what it is, and then hand it to them and let them try. So lots of really good specific instruction. It's kind of a, in my way of thinking, a, a no-fail approach. So what we see here on the slide are some examples. Uh, this is called a wanderer's cart. This is made with PVC, and a lot of the items that are included in the Simple Pleasures Intervention are on this cart. Wonderful ideas, many of them, but the idea is that interventions are kept in an accessible location. This isn't in somebody's closet behind a key that's only accessible by the activities department. These are things that are available to people out on the unit in daily care, and that not only the activity personnel understand, but the day-to-day -day caregivers understand. And whether that's a family member, or whether that's a certified nursing assistant, or the nurse, or a dietary aide, or other ancillary personnel. The idea is that everybody needs to know how this stuff works. So when we're thinking about that, one of the first things is called a wave machine. Now, you might notice these look remarkably like salad dressing bottles, which is what they are. And they're filled with a combination of water and oil and color, uh, artificial coloring, and then glittery, sparkly, interesting things that move when we move the object. And so we start out by showing it to the person, and then how it looks and how it feels, and we hand it to them and let them try this is a stress ball. When you squeeze the ball, well, you can also make them with rice and balloons. And you put them in the person's hands. You've got somebody with a little grabby hand thing going on. These are wonderful uh, to give the person something to do with their hands instead of grabbing us. On the left-hand side of the slide is, uh, is called a muff. Um, and you put your hand on the inside. It's a nice, fleecy, soft, warm, comfortable, and again, for the restless hands, a nice place to put your hands and see what's inside the muff that feels so soft and nice. And then it's a nice satiny exterior so you can run your hand across the outside and feel how nice. And again, instructions that go with it 
to talk through what it is, how to use it, how to help the person be successful. The other side is called an activity vest, a vest that's got all kinds of different textures and claws and pockets you reach in and there are things that you pull out. So lots of variety in what we can do with this. And then the last one is called a, a hot water bottle. And again, they've made a nice fleecy exterior, a nice little jacket that we put around the hot water bottle. And so, so for somebody who's really, you know, getting a little bit agitated, of course, we have to have an order for the hot water bottle, but, but okay, we can do that. And then you get a hot water bottle, and you put the nice fleecy exterior on it, and you, you introduce it, you talk about it, and you let the person maybe hold it, hold it close to them. Doesn't it feel soft? Doesn't it feel nice? Isn't it warm? Is that comforting to you? Does that feel good? You know, so the idea here is that we really want to just pause and think about what is a person doing? And then think about the intervention as a distraction. And again, following the instructions that go with it. Another set of, of interventions, and these are things that can be done, you know, we talk about what can they do by themselves? Well, or what can they do one-to-one? -one? What can they do in a small group? These are the kinds of things that we might use in that arena. So on the left-hand side is a look-inside fishing box. For the guys who maybe used to like to fish, now, okay, the sharps are all gone, but look at the nifty bobbers and maybe the lures and all the fun things that a fisherman might enjoy going through and that might even stimulate them to talk about, oh yes, the great Canadian fishing trip and how much fun they had. And then for the ladies on the other side, it's called a look inside purse. And so we take a standard bag, maybe that has several different sections, and we load it up with all the stuff that a lady might carry in her purse. And then we take it out, we look at it, we talk about it, and so maybe there's a compact with a mirror and some powder. Maybe there's a little bag that's got some additional items in it that I would need while I'm traveling. So you just use your imagination, lots of fun stuff. And then that gives the person something to do. We also know that we can do things with wall hangings. On the upper side of the screen, you see it is a clothesline. And then you can hang up your socks, and then you take them back down, and then you can put them back up. And there's some women who have done laundry over their lifetime. That could be a really interesting form of some doing an activity that feels familiar. Some ladies like to fold clothes. Some other ladies like to do the clothesline. So variations on this theme. This is a, a hook game, so the person it's a ring toss, and so you create a board, and then the person actually puts the rings up on the board. And then there are sewing cards. Notice the big holes all the way around the card. So for the ladies who maybe who used to like to sew, you give them a nice blunted needle with a big thick piece of yarn, and then they can sew in and out around the card. So it simulates the activity of sewing but doesn't have the complexity of actually doing a sewing or needle point, needle uh, work item. And then on the other side, this is a home decorator book, and you create these with, you know, different pieces of fabric and wallpaper, paints, pictures. And, and so for ladies maybe who used to enjoy decorating their home, they can look through the book and talk about the colors and the color schemes and, you know, feel the fabrics actually in the book and the texture of the wallpapers 
So there are lots of things, again, that we can do that give people something to do. So these are, these are just a handful of examples of simple pleasures interventions that we could potentially use. Um, there are a long list on that first slide with all of the different categories. In each one of those categories, there's, you know, three, four, five more activities. So just dozens and dozens of things that we could potentially try uh, to work with the person to give them something that is a distraction, is enjoyable, that increases the likelihood that they're engaged in doing something that's enjoyable to them as opposed to, you know, just being overstimulated or distracted with all the confusion that's going on around them or all the other kinds of stimulation that may not be enhancing to their performance. So in this third step, so we first step, we do the second. Second step, we think about interventions. Third step, we pause and we say, is it working? Are we getting at what we want to achieve? You know, do we want to use a behavioral symptom rating scale to get at that? Or have we developed a behavioral log of the most problematic behaviors and quantifying that as we go across to make sure that we are, in fact, hitting the mark, or maybe we're not, we need to readjust. The thing that I think is so critically important is that we make sure that we've got an appropriate dose of the intervention. And, and I think about dosing of the non-pharmacological, the non-drug intervention, the very same way we think about a drug intervention. Is it the right amount at the right time you know, at the right frequency, because if it's too little or too much, it's not often enough, we're not going to get the outcome that we want. So think real carefully about what we're doing with the behavioral intervention, with the non-drug intervention, the same way that you would think about start low, go slow, with the drug intervention, so that we can be successful. We really want to think about, as we monitor outcomes, do we have a sufficient amount of staff training uh, and, and, and staff development activities to really be sure that we're getting the interventions delivered the way we would like to. So we want to really reinforce our staff training and development so that we've got the best opportunity to be successful. We want to think about adapting the intervention. So as you look at your behavior log or you administer your behavioral scale, you back it up and you say, well, this part is working really well, but this it just isn't going so well for us, so what else can we try? And we use an antipsychotic intervention only for persistent and severe cases that meet criteria for their use, and that is actually described in another part of the IADAPT materials under antipsychotic prescribing, and it is actually part of the geriatric lecture series in, in another uh, section. So we're not going to talk about that, but it is there for your uh, use and reference. So in the arena of staff training, I, I want to go down that path for just a few minutes. There are lots of really wonderful choices, but there are also a lot of challenges that go along with this. In most instances, what we talk about training as being necessary but not sufficient. We have to have it, but training alone isn't going to do the job. So. We know that there are lots and lots of problems that go along with staff training for uh, dementia care. We have low participation. There isn't sufficient organizational support. 
financial concerns are always at the top of the list. We feel like we, 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 we don't have enough money to do the right thing. Um, and so the commitment to quality of care really becomes the critical issue. Where's the organization in terms of what they're willing to devote to dementia care at this point in time? So it really is as much about the culture of the organization and what are their goals and what is their process and what are their communication practices and all the things on the left-hand side of the slide that are very important for us to consider in terms of how that plays in what we do or what we don't do. So this organizational culture are all of these, the conglomerate of these factors that are shared by the work group, or at least the majority of the work group, that influence what we do, what we don't do, how we think about a problem, whether we pick up the phone, call for an antipsychotic medication order, or whether we stop and we do the problem solving to say, gee, is this a new onset of something different? Is this delirium overlapping on dementia? Do they have new onset of, of an infection? It's the flu season. Oops, they just changed medications for their cardiac condition. I wonder if there's something going on there. Does that medication have an anticholinergic side effect? What does culture instruct us to do? So very important stuff because we think about what happens in successful environments. It really does rely on all team members getting it, understanding the person and their needs, understanding the person and their preferences for care, thinking about how to reduce and eliminate environmental stress. It can't just be one person. It has to be a team of people who all get it. How do we adjust our approaches and routines? And how do we do that consistently? Not just one person, but everybody doing the same thing, the same way, at the right dose to achieve the outcome that we want to get. And how are we using this assessment process to assure that it's a feedback loop? We're using this continuous process improvement over and over again to say, here we go, this is better, this isn't so good, try it again, okay, that's better, everybody doing it, and around and around we go. So very, very much important that we think about building a team that understands the needs of the person with dementia. And they can actually do the job. And that takes an amazing amount of, of cooperation and commitment. So all of the disciplines listed on the slide really need to be on board and talking to one another and thinking about how are they going to make change? Because as the slide here says, training alone isn't going to change much unless the organization understands the big picture and stands behind it. So the organization needs to see that supporting staff to take time on the front end, to slow it down, to simplify it, to cue the person, to hand them something, to illustrate you know, to mirror the behavior. That is so important to reducing problems on the back end. So we have to value those things. And if we don't, we're going to change the quality of the dementia care. We have to support efforts to problem solve. We have to help the certified nursing assistant and support the certified nursing assistant to come to the nurse and say, She's not right today. I'm not sure what's going on, but let me tell you what I see. 
and really value that and say, okay, well, let's go look at it together. You tell me and let's see what else and so on and so forth. And, and move away from, as soon as we see a change in behavior, oops, we pick up the phone and we ask for a new antipsychotic or some other medication to reduce the behavior rather than thinking about what are all the steps in the problem-solving approach that need to be addressed before we go there. So we really need to think about who's going to do what, who's going to take a leadership role, and who's going to make sure that the plans are understood and followed, and who's going to do the work, and who's going to collect this feedback. Well, I have confidence that, in fact, you can do this, and that there are a number of organizations who are, in fact, using this approach and are using it very well. It's a question of the culture that you create and the dispersion of the workload and a decision-making and, and problem-solving approach that you institutionalize in your organization that makes all the difference in the world. So I, in my experience, let me just say, in my brief experience, who's going to lead? How's it going to happen? Well, I have in my consulting work with a, a, a nurse manager, director of nursing, and she just made a mandate. She said, you don't get any medication until you run it by me. And we are going to do something very different now that I am your leader. And another nurse manager used a team approach. And in her perspective is that it's everybody's responsibility. And she put together behavioral care teams. And she took staff off of first shift and second shift and third shift. And she added some ancillary personnel. And they put them in charge of solving what the behavioral problem was. And they were using the ABC model. And so these behavior teams started tackling problems and saying, no meds until we exhaust all the options. And their rate of medication use came down, use of behavioral interventions came up, quality of care improved across the board. They had created behavioral teams, used staff training, and really had gotten on board with this model that this is the way it has to be because we're going to do business differently. In another situation, it was the medical director for the facility who said, I am not going to allow antipsychotics in this residence. We are not going to use them anymore. You will find a way, and I'm here to support you to do that. And by golly, the nursing personnel put their heads together. I think they had probably 60 beds. The other one, I think, had maybe 70 beds. The idea was they were not part of large corporations that had a lot of additional resources to throw into the mix. These are facilities that just took it on and said, we make the commitment we are going to do something different. And by golly, they did. And then another one rolled out of uh, my consulting experiences, inpatient admission policies, where the local hospital said, we're not taking anybody until you guys do a better job of problem solving. Because too many people are coming into the emergency department and onto our general psychiatric unit because they have really bad constipation. The rule outs have not been done before they hit the door at the hospital. We can't have that anymore. We're not going to even talk to you about admitting somebody until you can tell us you have done X, Y, Z, etc. to assure us that in fact the appropriate assessments have been conducted. So my point is that it is all organizational culture and leadership that really are critical. As much as I love the model that I uh, am talking about and the stepwise problem solving, it's not going to go anywhere if we don't have a team approach and a culture of care that says that's important and we support you and we're going to facilitate it and make it happen. So my advice is start at the top, work with your staff, your leaders, and then don't just impose it 
on the nursing personnel and the nursing assistants in this top-down, well, this is how we're going to do business now, but engage them and talk about it and, and explore it with them and say, what are the biggest problems you see? What are the best things we can do together? This is what we're trying to achieve. We want to get away from using antipsychotic medications. We want to get more toward you feeling like you're supported to do the right thing with the person who's got dementia instead of, you know, the shower, getting them to lunch, making sure that they're dressed, all of the task-oriented task -oriented stuff that tends to be the focus of what we are doing. So lots of important things that we can think about in terms of excellent training programs that are available in today's marketplace, thinking about the unmet needs that are important to consider in engaging people in this meaningful individualized activities and how that really is possible. The teamwork really is the critical, critically important uh, component of, of what we do to achieve these desired outcomes. Influencing leaders to make non-drug approaches the norm for your setting of care is really essential. So with that, that's the end of the program for today. What I would like to offer is that there are some additional resources that are available through the University of Iowa and some other places. One would be the Geriatric Mental Health Training Series that's free from the University of Iowa College of Nursing. Another is a, a dementia training program. It's a CD-based training that's available through the Iowa Geriatric Education Center that talks at great length about activity involvement and meaningful activity and actually has some great footage of Lynn Bittner talking about simple pleasures and giving some wonderful illustrations of the kinds of things that we actually can do. Another is Lynn and uh, Suzanne's book, The Nest Approach, Dementia Practice Guidelines, uh, that's available through Venture Publishing. Uh, this is a very affordable book chock full of great ideas with really good description, easy to use. Um, and then also the Managing and Understanding Behavior series that was developed by Linda Terry, who is also the person who developed the ABC model. And again, it's just chock full of great ideas and I think very affordable as it goes if you're wanting to provide training. And Simple Pleasures, free set of instructions for the sensory motor activities that are available online and available for you to use. That is the end of the program for today. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I certainly do wish you and your team the best success in implementing these ideas in your practice setting.